I was told this was for recording purposes, so I wanted to make sure it was off when I was singing. It's good to be back with you again. It's been about two years almost since last time I was able to, to be here before you, and it's good to be back once again. I know my voice doesn't care real good, so if you can't hear me over the air conditioner, just let me know, and I'll try to speak up a little bit more, and we'll, we'll make do, if, uh, hopefully. Tonight, I want us to explore a question that I expect most of us have contemplated at one time or another. We may not admit it, we may not want to even acknowledge that we think it, but the reality is we do. And that question is posed in what I put as the title for this message, How Can This Be Happening? Have you ever thought that? Something comes up, how can this be happening? I don't know what's going on in your lives. Obviously, I don't know you, you don't know me, but I do know that we both all live together in this sink-earth world. That means that in this world, we are going to have challenges. Uh, I expect that you've had various difficulties in the past, and probably some of you are going through difficulties right now. And that leads us to this kind of a question. How can this be happening? When we ask this question, what are we really asking? I think we probably recognize that when we express this question at the very core of it, we're really wondering, does God have things under control? Is he really in charge at the moment? We, I think we intuitively recognize that that's probably why we don't even want to admit that we would have a question like this. If we know we shouldn't think that way. I mean, you're here in a Baptist church on Wednesday night. I expect you know something about the Bible. You wouldn't be here otherwise. You're not going to be probably a novice in what the Bible teaches. And we know that the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. We know that the Bible says He's got it all under control. Yet we live in the real world, don't we? We live in the real world where difficulties happen, where problems come, and we find ourselves wondering if God really has it under control or not. We don't pose the question verbally, but we express it in other ways. We find ourselves being discouraged. We find ourselves being frustrated. We find ourselves grumbling, complaining, or maybe that's just me. But we struggle with this. We don't pose the question verbally because we don't want God to strike us dead. We, we don't want that. But we still have internal doubts. Does God have things under control? This evening, I want us to look at a man who asked a very similar question in the Bible. He had a very similar question, and he even had the courage, or maybe I should say the gall, to express it. He challenged God. God, you don't have under control. He challenged God's control of the situation. He found himself wondering if God was in control, and God answered the question. The, the man we're going to look at is the prophet Habakkuk. So you can turn there in your Bible with me. If That section where I'm going to make your Bible creak a little bit because we don't usually go to the, the minor prophets. In fact, I had to put my tag in it so I could find it quick myself. We don't go there very often. It's in that process, you know, Jonah, Micah, name Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Maybe go to Matthew, work your way back. Because if you hit Matthew, you're too far. But it's in that section that we don't turn to very often. Although I didn't remember this, but I did look. What did I preach here last time? 
Now, I actually preach from Haggai, so I guess I like the minor prophets when I come to your, your church. I don't know why. Anyway, what we're going to do is sketch this short little book out this evening, see how the prophet works in this book, but we're really focusing our sermon on a single verse that's found in God's response to the prophet. A single verse that's tucked in the middle of God coming back after the prophet challenges him. Do you have things under control? And in this verse, we find the prophet learned the lesson that we need to learn. A lesson that's vital. You know, I think God brings hard things into our lives for the sole purpose of teaching us this lesson. Regardless of what we may think, our experience, God is in control. Regardless of what we think or experience, God's in control. The verse we're specifically going to look at is the very last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20. In the context of the, the prophet's record here, I think that this verse that we're zeroing in on is one of the most ominous verses in the entire Bible. But at the same time, this is one of the verses that is one of the most hopeful verses anywhere in the Bible. It's a comforting verse. How can a verse be ominous and comforting? Well, it depends on which side of the truth that this verse teaches that we find ourselves. It's the simple truth that we see here. God is in control, regardless of what we think or experience. My challenge is to ask yourself this evening, where are you in relation to God's control of your life? Do you you accept that truth or do you reject it? I mean, at the core of your being. Not at what comes out of your mouth on when you're gathered here together in church. At the very core of your being, do you accept or reject that God is in control? How do you respond to life situations? What do your responses reveal? Read with me this single verse. Verse 20 of chapter 2. The prophet records, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Let's pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, we turn to your word tonight. We pray that your spirit would open it to us. That, Father, that we would be able to see you in a greater fashion than we have prior. That tonight you would do a work in our life. That you would once again reinforce in our minds in a way that becomes real that you are in control of all that occurs. Father, we do thank you for that truth. We pray that your spirit would demonstrate it to us through your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. This verse, God is speaking. And notice it says, let all the earth be silent. All the earth. This verse is universal in scope. It applies to everyone. doesn't matter who. All the earth. Tonight we're going to look at this verse from two different sides. Much like two sides of a coin. We can either reject the truth that we see in this verse or we can accept it. We can either accept that God is in control or we can reject that God is in control. We can either respond in submission to God and let Him control or we can resist and try to control life ourselves. 
Let's consider this verse, first of all, from the side of those who resist, those who reject God's control. In the immediate context of of the verse here, God is discussing the Babylonians. They are the very embodiment of people who would reject God's control. The, The central message of verse here that we see to those who resist God is this. God is in control. He will bring the resistant to justice. He will bring the resistant to justice. In the first two chapters of Habakkuk, it's a short book of three chapters, in the first two chapters we find two different groups of people who resist God. Two different defiant people. Flip back to the beginning and and we'll kind of pluck our way through quickly. Habakkuk begins chapter 1 in verse 2 crying out to God, How long, O Lord, will I call for your help and you will not hear? If you've ever gone through a tough time in life, you should be able to echo the sentiments that you can hear expressed there in, in the emotion behind that. How long, O Lord, will I call for your help and you will not hear? The prophet here, he's frustrated. He's frustrated to the point of despair. Habakkuk, if you don't know much about him, has kind of a tough job. He's a prophet. That means he's called by God to go to God's people and proclaim God's truth. The problem is, the people he's proclaiming to aren't listening. He's coming at a time when the northern kingdom, Israel's already gone. They're off the scene. The ten tribes that, that were in the northern kingdom, they've been taken to exile. The Syrians have already carted them away. Judah's the only piece of Israel left. And Judah's in rebellion. Habakkuk's being called to come to the people of Judah and tell them to to come back to God. But yet the nation of Judah is full of rebellious, resistant people. These are dark days in the nation. The nation doesn't have much time left. It's engulfed in sinful behavior. The, The sinful behavior actually seems to be going unpunished. They seem to be the ones that are making progress. Injustice and violence seems to be the the way of the land at at this point. The prophet's message that they need repent and and come back to God in obedience is just being ignored. That's where the prophet's at when he finds himself here pleading with God, how long, God, are you going to let this go on? God, don't you have control over things? This is your nation. Seem to the prophet that God is not doing his job of controlling his people. He's not controlling evil. He's letting injustices win out. Injustice is going unchecked. Righteousness is being thwarted. And Habakkuk's sick of watching it. The prophet's theology tells him that God's in control. The prophet's experience, not quite matching up. Ever have that feeling? Ever feel like that's the life you live in? Don't we begin to doubt that God has control of things precisely when our experience doesn't match up with our theology? We know what the Bible says. We know that the Bible tells us that God loves us. We know the Bible says God hates sin. That's our theology. 
But then something happens, and it seems like the world is completely different than that. The sinner seems to prosper, and we encounter problems that make us wonder, does God really love us? Maybe some of you began to ask these kind of questions after the last election, and you see the direction this country is going. Maybe some of you have lost your jobs along the way, and you began to ask yourself the question, Maybe you received a certain diagnosis from the doctor that made you wonder, does God really love me? Whatever it was, there's probably been a time where you didn't expect life to to happen the way it did and you found yourself echoing the prophet's cry, how long, O Lord, will I call for your help? And you won't answer. Well, God does answer the prophet. In beginning verse 5 through 9, he He gives an answer that in verse 5 he says, you would not believe if you were told. You see, God has a plan. God says, I'm going to raise up these Babylonians, these people that are evil, but they're coming on the scene now. I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to bring them in, and they're going to take care of the injustice here in, in Israel. The Babylonians, they're just coming on to the world stage at this point. They're they're. In history standpoint, they're not a power yet when Habakkuk speaking. They're just coming on. But they already have a reputation for viciousness, a, a reputation for wickedness. They're, they're strong but evil people. And their reputation demonstrates they have no value for human life. So God says, don't worry, I'm bringing the Babylonians in. I'll deal with the injustice here in Judah. Well, you know what? Rather than helping the prophet and, and dealing with his frustration, that sends the prophet into a greater tailspin. Habakkuk can't figure out how can that be. So in verses 12 through 17, again, we see the prophet crying out to God. He acknowledges that God's answer deals with the injustice of Judah, but deals with it in a way that he can't comprehend. How can God be using a a more rebellious people to deal with rebellion in in Israel? How can God be using more wickedness to deal with wickedness? How can God use a wicked people to punish who those who, by comparison, were more righteous? After all, Israel is the group that had God's revelation, right? Israel is the people who acknowledge God, the true God, How could God allow the Babylonians to get an upper hand? I want to pause and think for a moment about the emotions going on here. These are the same emotions that the prophet have that's at the heart of our questions when God's in control. We we try to sometimes pretend we don't have emotions, that we can live with our, our mind and control things, but we do. We have emotions and and we feel the unfairness of things. Maybe it comes in career aspirations that, that we allow to come before ministry opportunities. You know, maybe there's Wednesday nights where rather than come here on Wednesday night, you choose to work late. I don't know. But why would God punish us for doing something like that, which is relatively minor sin? Why would God punish us by letting somebody be promoted who we know is living in an immoral relationship? and is completely unethical every day. Why would God do that? 
Or why would God not bless our Bible-believing, God-honoring, Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming church when we see a church down the street that's none of those things growing? Isn't our church, in spite of all the faults that we know we have, still better than that? These are kind of emotions that the prophet is going through here. Habakkuk has serious emotion, emotional confusion going on. God, how can you do this? But he ends his cry with God with what I think myself is one of the most humorous, ironic verses in the Bible. Chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. In other words, Habakkuk saying, I know I don't get it. God, I, I, I've just challenged you that you're wrong. You can't do this, God. It's not right. I know I don't get it. So, you know, I, I'm just going to stand here. I'm going to wait. In fact, I'm curious to see how will I respond when I get corrected? Because I know what I said is wrong. That's what he's saying there. I'm, I'm curious. What will I do when God corrects me? Sometimes I think we get there. The prophet, though, he's willing to wait for additional revelation. He expects that God, somewhere along the way, is going to fill in the gaps and help him connect these dots that, at this point, just don't seem to connect for him and point out where his thinking has gone astray. And that's what God does. In the rest of chapter 2, God begins to explain that while he's using the wicked Babylonians as his instruments, don't think for a moment that, that they're going to get away with things. Don't think for a moment that, that God will overlook their wickedness in the end. They, they've gone so far as to set themselves up in place of God. They worship their own power. They worship their own pride. God's not going to abide that behavior indefinitely. In fact, he tells Habakkuk, write this down. Well, I tell you now, write this down, write it down, and send it with a runner throughout the whole nation. Let everybody hear what I've said. It doesn't matter if for a time wickedness seems to be winning. God has it under control. If it appears that wickedness is coming out ahead, that doesn't change anything. The point is, God doesn't have to work things according to our schedule. His schedule for justice is His and His alone. So in the rest of the chapter... He lists five reasons that the Babylonians deserve punishment. If you just skim, you see them in five woes, or depending on your translation, usually it's woe like in the beginning of verse 9. Five different woes that, that give reasons why the Babylonians deserve punishment. And it comes down to the ultimate reason in verse 20. That the key verse that we're going to take our lesson from this evening. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In the immediate context here, verses 18 through 20, God is talking about the idolatry of the Babylonians. They, they believe that they have their own truth. They, they receive their truth from their various man-made idols. They've set up these idols and, and worship them, and they think that's where truth comes from. In fact, they're convinced because of the victories they've been having that their gods must be superior to all these other gods, including the true God of Israel. 
They think that they have it figured out. But God addresses that thinking in verse 20 with this but. A mighty, mighty but. But the Lord is in His holy temple. God is assuring the prophet, true revelation is where it's always been. Genuine truth comes only from God. It does not matter what the Babylonians think. It's irrelevant what anyone thinks. All the actions of man, even these mighty Babylonians, haven't changed God's position one bit. He is still in His holy temple. He is still the only real seat of authority. He's still the source of true revelation. In the context here, if you study this out, this is a very ominous verse for the Babylonians. With that one but, God wipes all their logic away. With that one but, He dismisses their entire effort to displace Him and set themselves up as God. Their efforts are irrelevant to God. They haven't changed who God is. They haven't changed where He is at all. And one day, they're going to be forced to acknowledge who He is. And that acknowledgement will come with the full force of God's justice behind it. That's what God is promising Habakkuk here. He's promising the prophet that the Babylonians are going to be fully punished for their wickedness. And that justice is indeed going to be measured out in full measure. These Babylonians will be dealt with. And wrapped up in this warning, God reveals the proper response that we are as men can have to Him. The only proper response for mankind is silence before Him. When we encounter the true revelation of God... When we as creatures encounter a word from our Creator, the only proper response is silence. That's something we need to think about tonight. For any of us who have been resisting God and attempting to control our own lives, this verse carries an ominous warning. The same warning it did for the Babylonians. It is completely irrelevant how successful we might think we've been controlling our own lives. It's irrelevant how much we think we've managed to resist God. It's irrelevant what we might believe truth to be. What we think hasn't changed God one bit. The only thing that is relevant is that God is in His holy temple. He's still on the throne. He's ruling the universe. And from there, God has given absolute truth in the form of His revealed Word. Nothing else changed. Turn with me for just a moment to Philippians chapter 2. Keep your finger in Habakkuk. We'll be coming back there. But I want to bring out caution. There, there may be someone here that's been resisting God and attempting to run your own life. I want to make sure that, that you fully grasp the ominous nature of God's warning through the prophet Habakkuk. 
In Philippians chapter 2, Paul in verse 8 begins talking about Jesus Christ. Being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us here that God, from His throne in heaven that we saw Him sitting on in Habakkuk, has exalted Jesus Christ. God has exalted His eternal Son. And God has declared that there will be a day that every single one of us will bow our knee before Him and acknowledge that truth. That the reason this is given is, is very succinctly in verse 8. It's given to us why. Because He died on the cross. God exalts Jesus because He died on the cross. From, from that brief statement, Paul knew the Philippians that he was writing to here would understand. He's talking about that Jesus came, died for the sins of man, was raised by God the Father, and ascended back to heaven. He, Jesus paid the due penalty for sin. What he's warning us is the same warning that we see back in Habakkuk. If we resist that truth, if we resist acknowledging Jesus Christ during this life, it doesn't make the truth any less truthful. God is still in control. He is still going to bring the resistant one to justice. And every single one of us will bow our knee before Jesus. The only difference will be that when we do it, we will do it because we're forced to acknowledge Jesus as Master. But we'll never be able to accept Him as Savior at that point. The warning that Paul gives us is very akin to what Habakkuk is, is showing here. God is in control and God has a plan. We need to accept Jesus while we can. As we turn our attention back to Habakkuk, I want us to recognize, though, resisting Jesus as Savior is not the only type of resistance that's implicitly contained in verse 20 of chapter 2. Remember, I mentioned the prophet was to have this message written down. The prophet was to have this message recorded and read throughout the nation so everybody would know what God has said. The prophet was to have it taken. The people of Judah, as I mentioned, were people who, at least by their lips, acknowledged God. Their lives were shown they resisted Him and rejected Him, but by their lips, they acknowledged the true God. They claimed they were looking forward to the coming of Jesus as Savior. They were looking forward to the Messiah. That's what their lip service was. But their life was filled by resisting the commandments and the guidelines that God had given. They weren't living obediently. They were coming up with their own approaches to life. Life was difficult, so... They found their own way to solve the difficulties and make life easier. There are many times that we do the exact same thing, that we resist in the same way. I, I hear people trying to justify sinful behavior with statements such as, well, I think, name whatever it is, fill in blank, really isn't that bad, even though God says it is. We have it going on in our city of Sterling Heights right now, the the city council passed an ordinance to 
accept gay and lesbians as if they were equal status. And people, even so-called Christians, are saying, well, that's really not a big deal. We should acknowledge them. It goes on and on. Somebody will say, well, I think it's okay for me to do this, even if the Bible says I shouldn't, because I feel really strongly about it. Words that scare me every time they come out of my mouth or I hear them from others is the words I think or I feel. If I'm honest with myself, I do this rationalization all the time. The same thing we see in Habakkuk here, the people of Judah were doing. We rationalize and attempt to justify our sin right before we commit those sins. But God's message here that we need to see in the warning is that what we think is right and wrong is irrelevant. What we think doesn't matter. God is still in His holy temple. Our thoughts haven't changed His position one bit. We haven't dislodged Him with our human efforts to take control of our own lives. We haven't dislodged God with our wisdom. The warning to us is that we need to recognize that truth now and repent of our sins before we bow before Him in shame. God is in control. He will bring the resistant to justice. Regardless of what we may think or experience, God is in control. This verse carries an ominous warning to anyone who is resisting God. But I said that's only one side of a coin here. We have two sides on this verse, depending where we come from. In giving this statement to the prophet Habakkuk, God was giving him a message of hope, comfort. So we need to see the other side of the truth as well. God is in control. He will bring the submissive to salvation. God will bring the submissive to salvation. As this message was being delivered throughout the land, as as the runners would take these copies and and go throughout the land and declare this message in, in town after town, it's true that the vast majority of, of the people that heard it rejected it. They resisted. But there was the few, the remnant, the ones that were listening to God that remained submissive to his commands. Habakkuk expected God to deliver this remnant because God had promised all along that he would preserve the nation. Habakkuk himself even expressed that at the very beginning of of the, the book in verse 12 of chapter 1, when he begins to respond to God, he says, we, talking about the nation, will not die. God, it doesn't matter what you do. We won't die because you have promised that you'll preserve us. And God's response here in chapter 2 confirms that belief for the prophet. He reassures the prophet in the beginning of his statement that, that he will preserve them. In, in verse 4, the very beginning of God's response He says the righteous will live by faith. Hope comes because we are declared righteous or justified by our faith. That's the wonderful truth that God gives as the first words here when when the prophet was standing there saying, well, I'm waiting to see what I'm going to do when God sets me straight. Well, the first thing that God tells him is that the righteous will live by faith. That's wonderful truth that gave hope to the prophet. That's been a 
truth has given hope to the church throughout history and continues to give hope today. In fact, this is the, the central statement that a very simple expression that, that becomes the, the core of Paul's expression of the gospel in Romans as well as Galatians when he repeats this verse in Romans 1.17 and in Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. That's our ultimate hope. Our eternal salvation comes because we are declared right before God by our faith. But let's now put ourselves back in the prophet's sandals. Why could he take comfort from this simple statement? Because of the verse we're looking at. The Lord is in his holy temple. The very one who's promising that the righteous will live by faith is in his holy temple. He hasn't moved. The image of God as the true God of the universe, the sovereign over all, is completely unchanging. God is seated on his throne. That told the prophet that while God's purpose can't be hastened, or delayed for that matter, it will most assuredly come to pass. It will happen. God has declared it. Delay is only in the eyes of man. God's purpose always comes at its appointed time, and the faithful, the justified man, can take comfort in that truth. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we're told, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, we cannot think, just because we don't see the Lord moving immediately, and that God's not helping us out as soon as we're in the middle of an unpleasant situation, we can't think that God's not in control. God hasn't changed His purposes. God's purpose is still the same for us. His purpose remains to work all things for His ultimate glory and our ultimate good. He's promised that to be His purpose. We have to remember that when we begin to ask, how can this be happening? The answer may be just simply that God's long-suffering. Why is God letting this person get ahead that is sinful? Well, maybe God's just long-suffering. Maybe He's not immediately punishing their sin for the same reason He immediately punished mine before I knew Him as a Savior. Because He's gracious and long-suffering. Maybe God's even using our endurance of the situation to help show Himself to someone. We don't know what God is doing. Or maybe He's using the trial to bring us to increased maturity, as James tells us in James chapter 1, 2 through 4, that God will bring these trials that we are to consider all joy so that we can be brought to a mature believer. God has His purpose in what He's doing. He is on the throne. He's in His holy temple. The final thing I want to observe this evening is Habakkuk's response to God. The prophet's been reminded here in in our verse, in chapter 2, verse 20, that God is in control. The Babylonians is nothing more than a tool in the hands of God. God has His purpose in using them. 
Is that sufficient? Is that enough to know? Think about what God has told the prophet. He has told the prophet that incredible evil and hardships are coming upon Judah. The Babylonians are coming. That's been the message. As Habakkuk contemplates this, we see his emotions in verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place, I tremble. Even though Habakkuk has the assurance that God is in control, that doesn't lessen his dread of the situation. The thought of what lay ahead was enough to make him quake in fear. We probably have all experienced that. A year ago, well, I guess a year and a half ago now already, Grace, my wife, was diagnosed with cancer. We knew God was in control. doesn't make any less where you quake with what might be coming. The thought of what lay ahead was enough to make the prophet tremble and fear. When the prophet contemplated the immediate future, he had a dread about what was to happen. This evil nation was coming in. They were going to annihilate everything the prophet loved. People were going to die. Those who didn't probably would wish they had with what was left behind. The immediate future was bleak beyond our ability here in America to even comprehend. And nevertheless, God told the prophet, I am in my holy temple. The understanding that Habakkuk had that God's ultimate control was sufficient. He goes on in the final verses to show his willingness to submit to God's control. Habakkuk knows that his salvation, the salvation of his people, ultimately comes from submission to the Lord. And that is enough. That is sufficient. The Lord is in his holy temple. Read with me the end now of chapter 3, picking up again in verse 16. Yes, he says, In my place I trembled. I trembled because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, all kinds of bad things, even if they happen, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hind feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk says, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for this day of trouble when that day comes, even though it's going to be horrible. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will glory in God because God is in His holy temple. He is in the throne. He is the one who is working all things after the counsel of His will. And Habakkuk knows that God will give him strength in that day. God Himself is the source of the prophet's joy. Nothing can change God. And His joy comes from His ultimate salvation, which is securing God. And He's going to submit to whatever God ordains for His life in the meantime. 
This is the very same realization that causes Paul to exclaim in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to to be revealed to us. Folks, are you able to respond in kind? Do you have a vision of God in His holy temple, on His throne, sovereignly controlling His universe? That includes everything you encounter in life. Do you have that vision? Is that sufficient for you? God will bring the submissive one to salvation. Regardless of what we may think or experience, God is in control. Does that simple fact bring joy? God has promised that all things will work for His ultimate glory and our ultimate good. As believers, we have the eternity in heaven, worshiping God in His temple while He's on His holy throne before us. Compared to that, what is our current hardship? Are we willing to let God use these current hardships to accomplish His plan? But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Which side of that verse are you on tonight? Regardless of what you may think or experience, God is in control. Do you accept that truth or reject it? Your response doesn't change with the truthfulness of the statement. God is still on His throne. Your response does, though, determine which side you're on. Is this verse an ominous warning or an incredible comfort? We can be assured that situations will come up in our lives that are beyond our comprehension. We're going to experience things that challenge our understanding of God. We're going to want to ask, how can this be happening? And that's the very moment that we need to remember that nothing has changed at all. God is still in control. God is still in His holy temple. He is still on His throne. We can accept that truth or we can reject it. If we reject that God is in control, it doesn't change anything from God's perspective. He will bring the resistant to justice. If we accept that God is in control, we must focus our attention on Him. He will bring the submissive to salvation. God is far from an unconcerned spectator in the events of this world. Assuming that we all know Jesus as our Savior, we need to focus on our ultimate salvation, the eternity that we will spend with Him in heaven. That should bring us joy, regardless of what we experience. God will sustain us through whatever trial comes our way, and we can rejoice in His strength and His goodness. We can allow it to accomplish His purpose in our life because He is on His throne in His holy temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. Father, we thank You for the great assurance that we see here that indeed You are sovereign. You are in Your holy temple. You are on Your throne. Father, we all recognize, I expect that there are areas in our lives where we are resisting Your sovereign control I pray that you would bring us to repentance, cause us to turn to you in in humble submission once again, and give us great joy that we can have confidence in you. May we focus our gaze upon you at all times. Father, we know that you love us. You sent your Son to die for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.